right, well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you are here today. I would encourage you to take those Bibles and open them up to Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32. I'll have no verses on the screens today for you. So as you're finding your place in Psalm chapter 32, I'll give you two other places that you might want to mark in your Bible. Uh, One would be 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and then Hebrews chapter 12. So Psalm 32, primary text, we'll journey over to 2 Corinthians 7, as well as Hebrews chapter 12, as you're finding those places in your Bibles. Just kind of give you an idea of where we're going to be going over the next several, several weeks. Uh, uh, today I'll do a standalone message on Psalm chapter 32. Uh, next week I'll do a standalone message on a call to serve, a challenge for, for the new year. And then more than likely on Sunday, uh, January the 10th, uh, we'll begin a series of sermons through the book of Romans. And so for those of you that are faithful in taking notes, you've got a couple of weeks, I'd highly encourage you to get a journal, uh, something special that you haven't used to this point, uh, because we are going into a deep dive in the book of Romans beginning on January the 10th. So if you want to you know, get something to be prepared for that, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, you've got a couple of weeks of head, head, heads up so you know kind of where we're going to be, how long that's going to take us. (laughs) Lord only knows the answer to that question today. We are not going to rush through it by any means. We will take our time. It will go verse by verse. We'll go word by word if necessary at some points of it. So I just want to kind of let you know what you have to look forward to. Today, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 32. And so although it is not specifically mentioned in this text, Most biblical scholars would agree that Psalm chapter 32 is all about David's sin with Bathsheba. If you're not familiar with that account or event, you could read about it in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. A very brief summary of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 would be David was neglecting his responsibility as a king. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And so after uh, committing uh, adultery uh, with uh, another woman who happened to be married, uh, she becomes pregnant. And so Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David tries to cover and conceal his sin after a series of failed attempts of uh, covering his tracks. It ultimately ends with, with David setting up a trap to have Uh, Bathsheba's husband murdered and after all of that for about a year following uh, David hides his sin before others he tries to conceal that sin before God during this time he experiences the deep turmoil that comes with unconfessed sin after a series of months the Lord sends a prophet, Nathan, uh, to confront David. And in that confrontation, David confesses his sin, repents before the Lord, acknowledges with full sincerity the sin that he committed, confessing that sin. In fact, we have a record of that confession that's found in Psalm chapter 51. 
what's interesting is after committing the sin and, and, and trying to conceal that sin for, for many, many months, and then when he was finally confronted and confessed and came clean before God, in Psalm chapter 51, verse number 13, David makes this declaration. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. So David was determined based upon his own personal experience that he didn't want other people to have to go through what he went through. And so he was determined, determined that he was going to show other people that there's a better way to deal with sin. And that is confessing that sin unto God and receiving the forgiveness that comes with that confession. And so Psalm chapter 32 is the fulfillment of the oath that David makes in Psalm chapter 51, verse number 13. In fact, it was so important for, for, for David that his listeners would, would heed his instructions that in this chapter he has three intentional pauses that he has created. He uses the word Selah. And Selah, if you're looking at your scriptures right now, you'll look, it's usually all, either off to the side or in, in the middle of 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 um, the, the paragraph there, it'll say the word Selah. Uh, Selah is an intentional break. It's an, a, it's an intentional pause. It's, it's giving instructions. Hey, once you've read through this part and you see that word Selah, you're supposed to pause, meditate, reflect upon what you just read and what you just heard. And so, so important for David was the for the people to pay attention to what he's saying, he has three of them in here. He has a, a, a pause, a break at the end of verse number four, after the end of verse number five, and, and then again in verse number seven. So David's instruction in this psalm is, is clear and it's very compelling. His instruction is uh, don't harbor sin in your life, confess it promptly unto the Lord. And when you do, you will find that God is there ready to forgive you and to cleanse you. He, he's there ready to remove the guilt that comes with your sin. And he's ready to restore you into a proper fellowship and relationship with him. There are several foundational truths that we can find in this chapter. I'll give you three this morning. The first foundational truth is that God will bless us when we repent. God will bless us when we repent. David begins this psalm by encouraging us to turn to God when we've sinned. In fact, he says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Look at verse number one. Verse number one begins, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now the best synonym that we have in our English language, the best synonym that we have for this word blessed is the word happy. But happy in and of itself falls so short and truly understanding what it means to be blessed. Yes, it means happy in our understanding, but it's more. It means to have joy, to experience contentment, to have peace, satisfaction, to have a calmness about us in our spirit and in our lives, 
to experience fulfillment and assurance that is all contained within that word blessed. So blessed is both an inward and an outward state of being. We, we enjoy this happiness in our spirits, also in our relationship with other people. Throughout the Psalms, we are told that we are blessed because of many different reasons. Here we're we're talked about being blessed because our sin is forgiven. Elsewhere in the Psalms, Psalm chapter 32 tells us that we are blessed when we confess our sins unto God. We are blessed when we trust in the Lord according to places like Psalm 2, Psalm 34, Psalm 40, Psalm 84. We trust in the Lord, we're blessed. Uh, We're told in Psalm 119 that we are blessed by keeping the law. In Psalm um, uh, Psalm 94, uh, we're told that we're blessed when we're disciplined by our Lord. So those that are disciplined by God are blessed by God. Psalm 112, we're blessed because we fear the Lord. Psalm chapter 1 says we're blessed because we do not associate with the ungodly. Other places, Psalm 41, we're blessed when we're generous to the poor. Psalm 84, we're blessed when we find our strength in the Lord. Psalm 106 says that we are blessed when we maintain justice and we live righteously. In our psalm this morning, Psalm chapter 32, is going to teach us that there is a blessing for those who turn to God in genuine repentance. That blessing is what we call forgiveness. You see, when we repent of our sin, the Lord blesses us by forgiving our transgressions and covering our sin. Now, in order to fully understand the beauty of what I just said, we we might need to pause and reflect over what those words actually mean. So let me give you a brief definition of them. Transgression. We'll start there. That word transgression is a willful rebellion against God. Transgressions occur when we directly disobey His holy word. This disobedience to His word results in us breaking His law. That's, that's, that's transgression. And then we see this word sin. And so why does it just say transgression again? Why is there a different term that's being used here? Uh, because we've got to understand what sin means. Sin is an act that literally misses the mark. Sin is uh, an act that, that falls short of what it's supposed to be. This is the same verb that's used in Judges chapter 20, verse number 16. Now listen, in Judges chapter 20, verse number 16, it's a verse that describes left-handed Benjamites. The verse literally says, out of all of these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. The word miss is the same Hebrew word that's translated as sin. So these Benjamites were so accurate with slinging the stone that they could split a hair and not sin or not miss. So here we see that sin is is a thought 
is a word or is an action that, that falls short, that, or better yet, that misses the mark of God's perfect standard of righteousness. Sin is something that misses the mark of God's perfect standard of righteousness. And to put us all on even ground, Romans chapter 3, verse number 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. Whether it's by an act, a thought, something that we've said, we have literally missed the mark of God's perfect standard of righteousness. That's sin. But then we have these other terms, like the term forgive. Forgive means to lift, to bear, or to carry away. This term portrays a very beautiful image. As sinners, we bear a very heavy burden because of our sin. And when God forgives us, He removes that burden from our lives and He takes it away. That's what it means to be forgiven. And then we see the term cover. He covers our sin. The word cover means to conceal, to clothe, or to hide from view. So in forgiving us, God, God covers our sin. He clothes our sin so that we, He never sees them again. Verse number 2 begins with, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. So, so David goes on to say that, that God's forgiveness is granted only to those who genuinely repent. Because the next phrase says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, when we turn to God with complete sincerity in our lives, without any deceit in our spirit, and we confess our sins, then He will carry the burden of that sin away from us, and He will cover and conceal it in our lives. So He never has to see it. It is a beautiful thing that happens when we, in true sincerity, confess that sin before God. But you need to understand, there is a huge difference between being remorseful from our sin and being repentant of sin. So those that have already found your places, that's why we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul understood this reality. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse number 8, Paul writes and he says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. And now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. He says, For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world produces death because the sorrow of the world stops with that remorseful feeling. It doesn't lead to repentance. It falls short. It says in verse number 11, For behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow, 
has produced in you what vindication of ourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. See, having remorse is the feeling of guilt, regret, shame, or even sorrow for sin. But true repentance goes beyond the feeling of remorse. True repentance results in a confession of the sin and a willingness and a desire to change our behavior that led to that sin in the first place. See, when we genuinely repent of sin, we're not just sorrow or sorrowful for what we've done, but we acknowledge that what we did was wrong and we want to confess that and we want to change our lives because we don't want to do the thing that we did because it's sin. So true repentance results in a change of behavior with the help and the assistance of the Lord working in and through our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so while we're here, let me just take a moment uh, to address something that, that many of us very well might be dealing with. There are some who have sought God's forgiveness, and yet you still continue to deal with the guilt or the shame of your sin. Now, if this has happened to you, or, or when this might happen to you, and we're talking about sins that have already been confessed with true sincerity, sins that have already been forgiven by God, when that guilt begins to rise up within you, you need to return to these verses. You need to understand, as a child of God, in the confession of your sin with true sincerity, that you've been forgiven. What, what, what does that mean? That means He has graciously carried away the burden of that sin. That He's concealed it from His sight. He's canceled the debt that we owe as a result of that sin. Don't buy into this mindset that says, uh, and people in there trying to encourage you, says, oh, brother, oh, sister, you just need to learn to forgive yourself. No, that's not what it's saying in here at all. That concept isn't even in the Word of God, forgiving yourself. No, what you need to understand is that you've been forgiven. So live that way. Quit walking around with your head hanging low with the guilt and shame of knowing that if you are sincere and genuine in your repentance, that God has forgiven you. Pick your head up. Live the way that he's called you to live. Be free. Anyway, somebody needed to hear that this morning. I don't know if that's you or maybe it's me. God will bless us when we repent. Number two, uh, God will discipline us when we fail to repent. Look at verse number three. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away with the fever heat of summer. For approximately a year, David rebelliously refused to deal with his sin. He uses the phrase, when I kept silent. Uh, this is referring to that period of time when he was trying to 
conceal his sin. And during this time, he experienced the grueling consequence of that sin. He says day and night, God's hand was heavy upon him. My friends, you need to know that the Bible teaches that the Lord will not allow his children to go about with unconfessed sin without experiencing discipline from him. That's a difficult thing sometimes for us to understand, but it's a beautiful truth that we need to embrace. Some of you are already there, so look at Hebrews chapter 12. The Bible teaches us that the Lord will not allow his children to continue in sin without discipline. Hebrews 12, beginning of verse number 4, says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. So, so then here, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews is going to recall and explain Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And so it gives the quote from there. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Then goes the explanation. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You need to hear what that just said. If if you're living in outright rebellion against God, violating his perfect standard of righteousness, and you don't experience his discipline as a result of that unconfessed sin, this text says, if you're without discipline, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. You're deceiving yourself into thinking that you belong to him. Verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. All that to say, when we sin, if we've truly been born again, and we fail to confess that sin, then the Lord will discipline us. As our Heavenly Father, He loves us so much that He will not allow us to stay on the destructive path of sin without bringing discipline and and, an attempt of correction into our lives. So therefore, our Lord will do whatever is necessary in order to correct our disobedience. I mean, I think we understand this. I mean, consider the way we discipline our own children. Usually the, the first step of correction is verbal. You know, you give a verbal warning or, or, or verbal command, and, and hopefully our, our, our children respond to that verbal command and they stop whatever the wrong behavior is. 
If they respond to the verbal command and they stop the behavior, then there's no need to go beyond that. Lesson's been learned. And we seek to reinforce that lesson. But should they disobey or not listen to that verbal command, and they continue on on that destructive behavior, then ultimately that discipline needs to kind of evolve into something more. So it could be perhaps it's with withholding privileges from them, taking something that they enjoy away from them, grounding them, or yes, I'll go ahead and go on record and saying it, gently yet firmly spanking the child. Perhaps that is what's necessary. The same is true within the family of God. If we respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction upon our commission of sin, and we respond to that conviction, and we confess that sin, seeking repentance and changing our behavior, then there's no need for the discipline to continue. But if we resist that conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we refuse to confess our sin and to repent from our sin, then, then, then God may have to increase His discipline in our lives. We see this in Scripture. You can read about it in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 5 or, or, or 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As hard as it may be to, to say, and equally as hard as it may be to hear, our unconfessed sin and our continual disobedience to the Holy Spirit's prompting and conviction in our lives that discipline could ultimately progress to the point where the final act of God's discipline is the removal of our lives from this world. We see those examples throughout Scripture. It is possible that God may choose to remove us from this world so that our sin will no longer continue to destroy ourselves, so that our sin will no longer continue to destroy other people, or so that our sin may no longer continue to destroy the testimony of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With that in mind, it is only natural to have a sense of fear about the discipline of God. But you need to understand that God's discipline should also encourage us. Because His discipline reveals to us just how much He loves us and just how much He cares that we do the right thing for His honor and for His glory. Look at verse number 5. Verse 5 says that I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So as David continued to resist God, God's loving hand of discipline bore down upon him until ultimately it crushed his hardened heart. Totally defeated, David finally confesses his sin. Empty and broken, David cries out for forgiveness from God. And when David crumbles in a broken spirit before our Lord. It's a beautiful scene where God removes his heavy hand 
of discipline, and then he extends unto his servant his healing hand of grace. And so, how beautiful are the words when he declares that you forgave the guilt of my sin. I think here we see perhaps the greatest lesson from the entire psalm itself, and that is that no matter how vile our sin may be, when we genuinely repent before the Father, fully confessing our sin, emptying ourselves of all deceit, with the true desire to change our behavior, that God will forgive us. And David, along with countless other writers, have testified that God forgives any and all sin when the repentance is genuine. The Word of God declares, 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9, If we confess our sins, then He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So the three major truths, God will bless us if we repent. God will discipline us if we refuse to repent. And the third truth or the third statement that we need to take heed to is to seek forgiveness while it can still be found. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. After sharing his personal experience, David encourages other people to turn to the Lord for forgiveness. And just as he has found mercy and forgiveness upon his repentance, David assures us that we too will find the same thing and experience the same thing in our own lives. David stated a simple truth. All who are godly will pray and turn to the Lord when they have sinned. All who are godly will pray and turn to the Lord when they've sinned. So if we're truly godly, then we will not attempt, as though we could, hide from God or cover or conceal our sin. Instead, if we're godly, we will repent, seeking the Lord's forgiveness and also seeking His guidance and assistance in helping us overcome the sin that was in our lives. So so here's the good news. When we seek after Him, then we'll find Him. And notice, look closely at verse number 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. So notice the fact that there's a time when the Lord can be found, which seems to indicate that there's also a time when when He can't be found. So therefore, like it is possible that you could wait too long to seek repentance from God. We should never delay seeking forgiveness lest we wait too long and God's patience comes to an end in our lives. So verse 7 begins with, you are my hiding place. Oh, how much better it is to be hiding in God rather than to be hiding from God. Which brings the question, why would anyone 
willingly subject themselves to the judgment of God when they could freely receive the grace of God? What keeps a sinner from accepting God's gift of salvation? Or, Or even this, what keeps a believer from from confessing their sin rather than covering their sin? I I think in most cases, the answer to these questions is an unwillingness to make a change in our lives. When a non-believer says, I'm not ready to trust and believe, it's usually an indication that they're not ready to change the behavior of their lives. When a believer is not ready or willing to confess their sin and to repent from their sin, it's a strong indication that that believer, quite frankly, is not ready to give up this sin that they ought to be confessing and repenting from. It's usually an indication that they they plan to continue on in that sin. And let's be honest. God has provided us everything that we need in order to live according to his word, and in accordance to his will. We have his holy word to instruct us. We have his Holy Spirit to empower and to guide us. And then we have his watchful eye that's ever looking after us. The psalmist continues, verse 8, says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. I would say that if you want to truly experience victory over sin, then we must commit ourselves to the reading, to the studying, to, to the researching of the Word of God in our lives. His Word is also valuable into our lives. His Word is completely sufficient to, to guide us in our lives, to instruct us on how we can receive His forgiveness, and to reveal us how we're supposed to live as believers in the midst of this world. And so... David ends this personal psalm with an admonition and an exhortation after contrasting what it's like to hide from God rather than to hide in God. He invites us to rejoice and to praise God for his unfailing love because verse number 10 says, many are the sorrows of the wicked that he who trusts in the Lord loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. It's all to say that there's no joy that can compare to the joy of being forgiven. There's nothing that can compare to that. There's nothing that this world can offer that can compare to the beautiful life of living in proper fellowship with God. I mean, that, that, that should encourage us. It should give us an, an uplifted spirit. I mean, his 
verse says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous one, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And now the Baptist church has a difficult time understanding this verse. Rarely do we shout for anything. We're so reserved and laid back. We need to have a little bit of excitement in our lives. We need to have a little bit of joy in our spirits because the joy of being forgiven is a wonderful state to live in. Being surrounded by the loving kindness of God? Come on, does it get any better than that? And why in the world would we walk around all defeated and deflated when we truly understand who we are in and through Jesus Christ? And, and, and so, like, long gone are the days where we, as believers, should be walking around mopey of life, defeated or discouraged. There ain't nothing in this world that could ever happen that could take us away from the joy that we have in being forgiven in and through Jesus Christ the Son. Oh, yeah, our world is a mess. Absolutely. This nation is crazy right now. And there's no true sign that anything's going to get any better anytime soon. And quite frankly, all indications seem to be pointing to how things are going to just actually get worse. And when we, it's, 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 it's crazy. It's like, it's hard to see. Like, I wonder, like, are we on the verge of a, of a civil war within our own nation all over again? If we are, if we're not, you know, as children of God, we have been forgiven and we have been given an assignment from God that we need to pay attention to. Because being forgiven through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then we have been given the beautiful gift of His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit has been given to us to guide us and to empower us to carry out the task to which God has given to us. So I'm going to hit it hard next week. So that's either going to encourage you or it's going to cause some of you to not want to come next week because you don't want to hear what I'm about to say. His Spirit has been given to His children so that we might study His Word, know His Word, know His truth, so that His Spirit might recall unto us the truths to which we have studied. That's all in there. But also with the Holy Spirit's empowering of our lives, God has given us a special gift or ability that's to be used for His glory. Every member of the family of God is a minister unto the gospel. Every one of us. Some of us do it as a calling in life, and so we get compensation for it. We're vocational ministers. But every child of God has the ministry that they're supposed to be a part of. And so for the child of God who refuses to submit and surrender that in their lives, I don't understand it. Because if you truly belong to Him, then the Spirit dwells within you, and the Spirit is trying to work through you for the glory of God. So we will be clear in our language here at this church that we believe that every member is a minister and every minister serves in some type of capacity. You want to know when you're no longer expected to be a minister of the gospel? I'll give you a clue. It's when you're dead. When you're dead. 
And when God should call you home after all your faithful years of serving and sacrificing for him, then we will gather around and we will celebrate and we will look back with great fondness. That was a servant of our Lord. And we will be encouraged and we'll, we'll have a party and it'll be great because we'll know that you're in a place doing what we were all created to do, worshiping and glorifying God without any hindrance of sin in life. It's a good deal that we get as children of God. So don't walk away with your guilt and shame. May your guilt and shame that comes with sin lead you to repentance, to confess that sin, to receive the forgiveness, and change the behavior through the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the blessing of your word. Father, help us to reflect upon our lives. Some of us are just living in disobedience unto you right now. And we're trying to cover and conceal the sin that we're wrapped up in, hoping that no one ever finds out the things that we've done or the things that we've said. But God, may we know that we cannot hide that from you. You know all things, you see all things. Father, may each and every one of us, as this year is coming to a close, may we reflect, may we do all that is necessary for us to be in a right relationship with you. So in this time of response, Father, may sins be confessed, may commitments be made, may it all be done in a way that brings honor and glory unto you. Help us, Father. In Christ's name I pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed still. In a posture of prayer, we'll extend this time of response for just a little while. I'll be down here at the front. Some others will be down here at the front with me. I'd be more than glad to, to pray with you, to talk with you. We're just going to sit here in a moment and deal with whatever sin is in our lives or whatever confessions that need to be made. The altar is open. You don't have to talk to one of us, but you can. What's the one thing that our Lord is asking from you in this moment right now? Can you think of one? What will you do?